This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There was optimism the last time the top journalist at the Denver Post joined us. The state's largest newspaper had just put up a paywall with the hope that digital subscriptions would mean no more laid-off journalists and maybe even growth in the newsroom. But hope turned to despair last week when editor Leanne Colosiopo announced 30 staffers would lose their jobs. And Leanne is in our studio once again. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What happened? Well, you know, of course, we're still, I'm still very optimistic about the digital subscription model, but it's only a few weeks old. It just hasn't had time to really take hold and, and get us where we want to be. In the meantime, um, it's time for the budgets. We're looking at where we are this year. We're looking ahead to next year, looking ahead to um, sort of how the, the revenue's coming in and, and um, to a great extent, that's where these these layoffs are coming out of. Is um, that the the industry is still struggling, and we haven't ha- we haven't had it happen yet. And I don't think anybody thought that we would solve the entire problem um, six weeks into a digital subscription model. The critical question is the the paywall must have generated some revenue. Yes. Where did that money go? Yeah. And, ha- and what, what do you think was was the expectation readers had when they signed up? I hope that readers were signing up because they understood that journalism isn't free. All the things I talked about before, that they understood that um, to to support the work that our newspaper does requires a lot of money. Um, that's That remains true at this moment. Um, nothing in that world has changed. And, and I still think we're um, well situated, even with these cuts, to continue doing the type of work that they are um, that they're paying for. Um, however, we just, it's just been a, it's just been a short time and the economic forces that were in place when we put up that, um, that paywall, that, that model haven't reversed themselves. So to someone who signed up for the paywall and asks, where did my money go? What do you say to them? It went straight into our, it went straight into our pockets. (laughs) Um, you know, it, it went into the operations, it went into the operations of the, of the Denver Post. At its height, the Post had about 300 people in the newsroom. It's about 100 now, and it would go down to 70 thus after the cuts, uh, which which haven't occurred yet, by the way. Uh, some might contrast 70 and 300 and say, how can you remain optimistic? One thing I want to point out is this problem is not a Denver Post alone problem. Um, we're really talking here about something that is hitting newspapers across the country, regional newspapers, us, um, you know, my old newspaper at the Des Moines Register, the other papers in Colorado, our sister newspapers, all over the country, regional newspapers are, are um, going through these kinds of reductions. Um, wait, what was your question? That's okay. My question, <laughs> my, my question is how you remain optimistic oh. when you're talking about 70 versus 300. Right. Well, um, if I was having to go from 300 straight to 70, it would probably be more than you could more than you could take. But here's what I know. Um, I know what kind of work newsrooms with with 30 people have done. Um, and I certainly don't want to be there. But the kind of work you do, the kind of stories you attract, it's a matter of being smart in what you're um, how you're using the people in the newsroom, um, knowing your city, knowing your community like we do, and then making great choices about doing important work and knowing that you can do it no matter what. Last week, you told your staff about the layoffs. You've been at the Post for, I think, 20 years, and so these are longtime colleagues. Right. How did you approach having to do something like that? Um, well, first, you don't sleep for a few nights. <laughs> and then um, I just, we, we brought everybody in, and I just tried to approach them um, with the respect that I actually feel for them, thank them for their hard work, and then be completely honest. You know, I, I, 
I didn't want to try to sugarcoat where we were going or the number or that it was going to be a difficult situation. And, you know, the result was, as, as was reported um, at the time, that people were gasping and, and they were they were they were crying because this is a newspaper that is close to them. They've made the decision to be there. They believe in the work. They believe in journalism. So to hear that kind of number and to look, you know, to the left and to your right and know that, um, you know, one of those people would be gone was 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 really difficult. I want to say that you haven't decided which job specifically will be cut. Correct. You'll see who volunteers, opts right. for a severance package. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about what you can achieve with 30 fewer journalists. How do you deploy? How do you make those decisions about where to focus coverage and what gets cut? Well, we're still working through that to a great extent. Um, some of it will be we staff um, almost not quite 24 hours a day, but very close to it. Um, so you've got to look at how you're staffing. Um, is it really? Will you be around the clock? Will or we not? be right? Does it make a lot of sense to have somebody there at midnight on Saturday? Probably not. Um, make some choices like that, so that you are making sure that you're keeping your reporting. Uh, and your visual resources, um, very much focused on the subjects that we know are most important to Coloradans. V- visual resources, meaning photographers, Photography. videography. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, if there is a beat or a, a type of coverage that you think would have to fall by the wayside, what might it be? I'm not sure. And okay. I'm not sure that we are going to be, I'm not sure that we're going to have to make that choice. I hope not. We reached out to Alden Global Capital. This is the hedge fund that is the majority owner of Digital First Media, the Post's parent company. And it owns other papers across the country, including in Colorado, Longmont Weekly, the Broomfield Enterprise. We haven't heard back, but uh, what what have you heard from owners about these cuts? Um, I haven't really had any contact (laughs) with the owners on these cuts. Does that surprise you? No, um, the way it it operates um, in in uh, with with Digital First and and with Alden is that basically the properties, the Denver Post, the Boulder Camera, um, all the various newspapers are self are self sufficient. Um, we're expected to um, set a budget, meet a budget, and and proceed from there. So we don't really operate. Um, in, it's not a tight corporate set up like that where you would have a lot of contact. I'll say that Alden Global Capital and Digital First have been criticized for enriching themselves by cutting into bone at newspapers across the country. A former Post reporter, Eric Gorski, who's now at the education publication Chalkbeat, said Friday that what it's doing is borderline criminal. What's your view? It pains me to see what's what's happening, and I, and I wish it wasn't going to happen like this. I also understand that this is a business. I understand that you can't um, make less and less money year after year after year. You have to you have to have your your expenses and your revenue in line with each other. So I, I accept that part of the business as much as I don't like it. Do you feel that the owners of the Denver Post care about its mission? I don't think anybody cares as much about the Denver Post mission as the people who are working in this city and trying to um, put out this newspaper every single day. I think that we have, um, I think we have different goals. I think they, um, they, they, they own newspapers. They've been trying to help us figure it out. They haven't, they have, um, and this often gets lost, invested in newspapers. They've, um, it, we could never have even put up the digital subscription model without an investment from them. So this suggestion that they don't care at all about the newspaper 
is is I think untrue. But when you say they have different goals, what do you mean? Well, I mean that they are um, a, a business trying to run a business, and so it's more about that to them than this. Um, what for me it is a. A, a deep driven desire to serve a community and to do the right things in the community and to you know expose wrongdoing and tell the tales of the people who are um, voiceless in this community um, e- expose things all, all of that that's the soul of what I do and I don't think it's the soul of what they're doing there have been which call- isn't a bad thing we're just different we just have come from different places there have been calls for the newspaper to be sold to a new owner uh, The Denver Newspaper Guild said it tried unsuccessfully to run an ad in the Post that said, in part, we demand that the Denver Post owner, Alden Global Capital, sell the newspaper to local interests who care about this state and the role that vibrant independent journalism plays in its civic life. Uh, Meanwhile, the columnist Mike Litwin says the governor should step in. Uh, What do you make of all that? Is it realistic to think someone could come in and buy the Post? Sure. I mean, I, I I think that it's realistic to think that there's people out there who would like to invest in a, in a local newspaper, um, but it would be way way beyond any of my knowledge to know you know what that cost would be or what the business considerations would be in in whether to sell it. It wouldn't be my place to to speak to that. What if anything are you hearing from readers right now? Um, oh, the outpouring of support from from this community and from readers has been overwhelming. Um, you know, everything. Are you also hearing from people who just say, "This isn't what I paid for"? Um, a little of that. Um, a decent amount of you know, do what you got to do. If we have to put up with a few more typos, um, we'll put up with it to actually get the heart of the news. Some, of course, of people who saying, you know, you should go away. You're irrelevant anyway. And um, we cheer that we cheer the end of newspapers, which is a very sad and short sighted way of, of looking at things. Um, but we also had I don't even know how many people donate to a money uh, an account to go buy a beer for our staff <laughs> the night of the announcement. So um, something like a thousand dollars. So we've we've mostly heard really great things. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. That is Denver Post editor Leanne Colosiopo talking about forthcoming layoffs in her newsroom. Now, why does a hedge fund like Alden Global Capital invest in newspapers in the first place? Ken Doctor is a news industry analyst affiliated with Harvard's Neiman Journalism Lab. His blog is called Newsonomics, also the name of a book he wrote, and he's on the phone. Welcome to the program, Ken. Uh, Good morning. What is the incentive for a hedge fund to get into the newspaper business? Uh, It's exactly as we would expect. It's money. So this company and a few others got into the newspaper business, which had long been a brotherhood of uh, of really a relative few companies after the Great Recession. Mm. So in that recession, newspapers lost about a fifth of their business. And then you had more than a dozen bankruptcies of bigger companies. You had a lot of uh, distressed debt out there of remaining companies. And out of all that restructuring, you had companies like Alden say, this is an opportunity to make a lot of money. And so they were able to get into a business. And uh, just as Leanne was talking about a couple minutes ago, it's just a business to them, like any other distressed business. And they saw the opportunity to make a lot of money, and they have. I guess and that's they continue what continue to today. That's what I don't understand. How do they make a lot of money in an industry that has been so widely seen in and outside as flagging, as dying? So they make their money by cutting more. 
Um, all these companies, the, the newspaper industry in the United States is, uh, has lost more than half of its size in the last 10 years overall, down by about 60%. But if you cut enough week after week, month after month, year after year, you can still take in profit margins and Alden through Digital First Media, which is the holding company here, in many markets is making 20 to 25% profit margins. So while on the surface it seems absurd that you would have this kind of uh, flagging business and, a, and such a sign to consumers and citizens, lots of money continues to flow in every, every quarter to Alden Global Capital. I suppose that some will be wondering, are these 30 cuts at the Denver Post lining the pockets then of Alden Global Capital, uh, to whom again we reached out uh, yeah. but, but did not hear back from? Yeah, of course they are. Uh, the uh, the communities, I'm in Northern California, and they're very strong here in Northern California, and they have some uh, major properties in Southern California as well. All of these have been way cut back at the same time that subscribers have been priced up. My local paper, for instance, I got a note in the mail last week saying it was going up $0.22 cents, um, every, every day. So they're cutting the product. And, and here, and we're in a small community, we're paying more than $500 a year for a small paper that has four reporters in the county. And with that kind of profit margin, more than $100, to your point, is going in the pockets of Alden Global Capital. The arithmetic really is that simple. I have heard this described as harvesting cash, cutting these yeah. businesses, taking that money uh, for your own your own profits, but eventually that's going to lead to a gutted out newsroom and a product presumably no one wants. So it doesn't sound like a long-term business strategy. Right. It's not. It is a short-term or shorter-term milking strategy. And that's, I, I, I've been writing about this for several years, and, and, and that's what it is. And when I first um, started reporting it now five and, and seven years ago, it seemed surprising to me, too. But if you, if you look at it, it's not that unusual for other, other kinds of industries that have been distressed. So the question that you're raising, which, of course, is a vital one for Denver and Colorado, of what, what is the Denver Post in 2021? I have talked to people who work at that company, the executives, of course, privately and confidentially, and I'll ask them that question. And there'll be the silence, and then they will say, well, you know, there is no plan. The question will be, at in 2021, with however many people are left in the Denver Post newsroom creating the product that it can create at that time, um, will, will it still be profitable? If it's not profitable, you turn out the lights, I was told, or you sell the remnants to some local uh, group, uh, civic business people, uh, for whatever you can get out of it, and you get out. And the point is, you've made enough money up to that point, that it's okay to turn out the lights or do a remnant sale. Now, it is, it is, it is something that is, is heartrending, but it is actually the business strategy. This leads naturally to the question of whether there could be a buyer arranged for yeah. the Denver Post that might be more mission-driven, maybe sure. more connected to the Colorado community. As we said before the break, there are calls for the governor to get involved. Uh, yeah. The Denver Newspaper Guild is saying there ought to be another owner. 
likelihood of that happening and of of Alden saying, sure, we'll we'll sell to you? The likelihood is very complicated, um, and it's all financial here. So it is important to note Alden tried to sell the whole company two years ago, actually to another private equity company, and that fell apart at the end over about 30 to $50 million, relatively small amount of money. Um, and, and since then, they have sold some significant properties in Salt Lake City and New Haven, and even the, the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. And they've let it be known that many of their properties are for sale at a price that is four and a half times their annual earnings. So very clear to the newspaper brokers. The Post, however, I'm told, is more complicated. The Post has major pension liabilities that go with it. And because it is one of the major remaining papers of Digital First Media, it makes a substantial allocation to corporate. So part of that money, part of that profit, is going to pay the excuse me the headquarters expense of Digital First Media. That complicates the selling and doesn't make it as simple as pay me four and a half or five times my annual earnings. That's the hang-up here, and we would presume. That is the hang-up also with with Philip Anschutz in terms of um, we've long known he wants to buy the post of what the price will be given the financial complications. This is the Colorado uh, billionaire uh, who has made money uh, in many different ways throughout time, but most recently, I suppose, in in entertainment. Uh, Listen, Alden Global Capital is often vilified, accused of enriching itself at the expense of community newspapers. But you said that it bought the post at a pretty down time economically. Uh, ought we to think of Alden Global Capital as something of a hero in this story? In other words, what might the Denver Post be had they not stepped in? There have been in many other communities others who have stepped in. There's there's for-profit uh, single, uh, single pr- uh, public companies. And in, interestingly, in places like um, in Minneapolis and in Boston, uh, there have been uh, very wealthy people who have stepped in and recognized the civic mission. If you take, for instance, the Twin Cities, which is similar size to Denver, no. there you have a robust daily newspaper with, with more than 200 people in the newsroom, and it is taking a smaller profit margin of less than 10%, and it's stable because it, it, it moved in in a similar time period, actually, as to when uh, Alden took over and reinvested in the paper and believed in both the, the, the paper as a business and as a mission. So there are plenty of contrary examples, and somebody else would have stepped in um, had Alden not. Had Alden not. Whether they would be mission-driven, of course, is impossible to right. know. But Yeah, uh, of... it depends which billionaire you get. <sighs> I, I guess to wrap up, we talked a bit about the paywall that the Denver Post put up, and uh, there was at least hope that that would stop the bleeding, if not maybe regrow the newsroom. Right. Uh, Leanne Colosiopa, the editor of the Denver Post, talked about Alden making the investment so that the paywall was possible, though, of course, that allowed them to potentially reap more revenue. But do paywalls work? Is, is the paywall the savior to uh, flagging newspapers? So we've seen it uh, be, in fact, the savior of the New York Times. And, and we look at nationally the Times, the Journal, the Washington Post, uh, even the Financial Times, a huge success of uh, Paywall and really their, 
their future is assured at this point. On a regional level, uh, more tepid results, but in, in other places, in Boston and in Minneapolis, I mentioned, and some others, uh, it has really helped. It, it has helped buffer all of the advertising losses, which continue. The problem in, in Denver and at papers that have been cut so much is really that value proposition. Uh, the Denver Post is late as our DFM papers in bringing, uh, bringing to market a paywall. And then, of course, the, the, the product that people are getting is a lot less than it would have been three years ago if they had been asked to pay then and that money had been taken to bolster the newsroom. So, And I've talked to editors about this recently, and they wonder privately, talking about other newspapers in metro areas, is there enough of a newsroom presence left, enough content that readers are really going to buy these digital subscriptions if they're now being offered them? That's the big question. Is it too late to make a big difference in a place like Denver? You talk about DFM, Digital First Media. Thanks for being with us. That's Ken Doctor. He's a news industry analyst affiliated with Harvard's Neiman Journalism Lab. His blog is called Newsonomics, also the name of a book he wrote. Army veteran Jason White tried to kill himself when he got back from Afghanistan. His gun jammed. It's why he's alive today. After his suicide attempt, he started seeing a psychologist. Months of therapy made a world of difference. What White didn't realize is that his therapist wasn't getting paid. A VA program meant to get vets health care fast is leaving health care providers stranded. It's why some won't take in veterans. Reporter Stephanie Earls is covering the story for the Colorado Springs Gazette, and she is with us from the Springs. Welcome to the program. Hi. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm doing well. Uh, First off, help us understand why vets like Jason White are turning to providers outside the VA in the first place. Well, I mean, that that has to do with the program called Veterans Vet Vet Choice, which was um, enacted in 2014 specifically to help veterans like him who went into their local VA clinics and found out that they were going to have to wait 30 days, 60 days, 90 days to to see a provider, or that they'd have to drive to Denver, which is the closest VA hospital to Colorado Springs. So this was supposed to be the solution to the logjam inside the VA, that you'd be able to seek care on the outside. Yes. Yep. It was specifically created to, to address that. And what you're finding is that doctors who are providing this care aren't getting paid. Uh, What motivates them to keep seeing Vets Choice patients pro bono, I guess? Well, I think a lot of them are are still hopeful that the money's going to come because they've they've been getting paid in dribs and drabs. And then more recently, the, the payments just stopped coming. And it's, um, I mean, this this has drawn attention at the very highest levels of government. There's a, a bipartisan group of senators who who said to VA, you really need to fix this. The reason the payments aren't making it to providers is because there's a problem in the with the middleman. There's a problem with the the agency, HealthNet Federal Services, that is supposed to be providing the money to providers. They're supposed to be handing it out, and that seems to be where there's a log jam. And um, yeah, that's uh, it, there's an, there are audits ongo- uh, underway now, looking into that, 
Well, we'll talk so, about yeah, that it, in just a bit, that, that middleman, as you say. But mm. uh, did, did the vets you interviewed know this was happening, that, that doctors might have been seeing them and not being paid, at least not quickly? Well, I think they know now. I From talking to doctors, they didn't want... Like, after they started to not get paid, these providers didn't want to immediately let the, their patients know about it because these are, are people, men and women, who are dealing with PTSD, anxiety, major issues, major stress. The last thing their providers want to do is to to lay one more thing on top of that and say, you know, here's here's one more problem that we're having if this keeps going on. I might, I might not be able to continue seeing them. That's going to really stress them out, stress mm-hmm. the patients out. And it just it, it compounds the, these veterans' feelings that their country isn't looking out for them. It's really it, it's betraying them. It promised them uh, health care, and now it's not, not following through with that. And you found providers uh, perhaps who were just unwilling to take on veterans because they know of the payment problems? Is that an issue? Well, not all veterans. There are different um, programs, insurance. I, um, Vet Choice isn't an insurance. It's a program that that pays for their care. But their veterans can see providers through different programs. It's just it's specifically Vet Choice, mm-hmm. which in theory is a great program because it allows someone to see a, a, someone in their community, a provider in their community. It's a zero copay program. Um, in theory, it's great, but. Um, yeah, it's just it's not working out the way that it's supposed to, that it could work out. So the breakdown is around this, uh, as you say, middleman, a third party managing company, uh, HealthNet yes. Federal Services. Is this a for profit? What, what, what is tell us about this company? You know, I am still in the process of trying to learn more about HealthNet Federal Services. I mean, this is such a complex story with so many moving parts. Hmm. Um, I'm still trying to learn more about them. They are they are a third-party administrator that con- the VA contracts with to manage vet choice. And actually, HealthNet just took over management of another um, government contract for veteran health care. But that's, that's a whole other a whole other piece of this. I guess so. Lots of questions would and, would would arise out of that. So yeah, this is just HealthNet is being is is the focus of multiple audits right now actually them and another another contractor. Um what do you yeah, think Yeah, they've uh, oh, Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No you. <laughs> <laughs> we can't we can't well, see each other, so these, there's an awkward delay. Here. Okay, yeah, this is a uh, it these audits, these reports from the the VA's internal watchdog have found that there's tens of millions of dollars that's seems like it's gotten stuck at the uh, the health net level that hasn't ended up getting paid to veterans. So while these third this third party administrator is taking in all this money um and you know, it is it's tens of millions of dollars these the providers on the ground are fighting to get paid again and you know $100 here $100 there um and it's really putting their practices in jeopardy which in turn is putting their patients, their veterans, in jeopardy of not continuing to get, being able to continue to get care. And what is the effect of that, say, on the Colorado Springs community? If they can't get that care, if they have nowhere else to turn, what is what does that mean for a place with I, so many veterans? I think it's just, it's horrible. I think it's, it's 
doesn't make us look very good because we're certainly not doing everything we can to take care of our veterans. And it's putting doctors in a har- doctors and, and providers in a horrible situation because they have an obligation to their, their patients, but they also have an obligation to the other patients that um, are the other patients whose insurance is supporting their business while that choice isn't paying. And then for these small providers, especially the one-doctor shops, for therapists and um, psychologists, this is, I mean, this could be make or break for their business. And, you know, if more providers say, okay, this is, Vet Choice is a great program, but they're not paying us, I'm not even going to accept it and put myself and my patients in that horrible situation to have to make that decision. Thanks for being with us, Stephanie. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Stephanie Earls is with the Colorado Springs Gazette, and she reports that veterans and doctors are stranded as a program called Vets Choice fails to pay bills. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Say goodbye to fire seasons. Now there are fire years. That change in messaging comes from the U.S. Forest Service. And despite some moisture over the weekend, Colorado's had a dry winter. So what's the wildfire forecast looking like? Scott Swenson manages the Rocky Mountain Area Coordination Center in Lakewood. Also on the line is wildfire meteorologist Russ Mann. And welcome to you both. Good morning. Morning. All right, Scott. On a on Friday, I'll say a fire broke out at Fort Carson. It was sparked apparently by live fire training. Three homes, several buildings were destroyed. Uh, the fire was declared fully contained on Sunday. Uh, perhaps uh, speaking though to the dry conditions, to the windy conditions. Generally, how prone is the state right now to wildfire, Scott? Well, as you mentioned, uh, currently, you know, you look out your window and you see uh, snow or uh, pretty wet conditions here, and especially in the Denver metro area and the Palmer Divide. But most of uh, eastern Colorado, as well as uh, especially the southern portions of Colorado, have been pretty dry and not have had a lot of moisture. Um, I think Russ will probably talk a little bit more to the drought that really is uh, impactful right now across our, our state. But wildfire activity certainly has picked up over the past few weeks. There was a large wildfire fire down in Baca County uh, about a week ago uh, that started in New Mexico and crossed into Colorado. Uh, certainly, we had the Carson Midway fire there on, just off uh, on Fort Carson and came off of Fort Carson. Yeah. And then we had a wildfire just upside, outside of Boulder there. And are, is this unusual to be having wildfires this time of year? Put that into some context for us. Uh, not really. Um, certainly, you know, in um, our fall, winter, and spring months, you know, we look at that lower elevation of Colorado and the eastern plains where the grass and brush are really dry. Uh, if we don't have any snow cover in those areas, a large wildfire can start and spread fairly quickly on a warm and windy day. Mm. Uh, we look at, you know, what are the ignitions that are out there? What are the fuels and the weather conditions? And that really drives a lot of our fire activity in, in this time of year. Uh, Okay, Russ, to this idea that the southern and eastern parts of the state are especially dry, speak a bit to the the drought that's going on and that we're sort of carrying with us into the height of fire season. Yeah, um, really uh, a snowpack in the uh, southern portion of the state is uh, 
tells a, a big portion of the tale with uh, a lot of air, a lot of our snow measuring sites at uh, at their lowest uh, readings that we've seen since uh, uh, they've been taking uh, consistent records there going back to about 1980. So um, wow, you know there there's a bit of a and if you look at some fire history, uh, you can see. Uh, some correlation with the spring snowpack uh, to uh, fire season. So that is to say, a uh, low snowpack to... tends to lead to a harsher fire season. Uh, yeah, and um, you know, earlier start than average, um, and um, obviously, then you're going to have a longer fire season overall if you get it, get off to an early start. It doesn't mean it'll continue throughout the summer. But you can at least get off to a, get off to an early start. That's in the front range. Uh, uh, a lot of our uh, historically large fires uh, have been in June, um, even early June, uh, if you want to really pin it down. Um, so, and that's uh, a lot of that's related to um, snowpack uh, coming into the uh, coming out of the spring, being at a deficit. Okay, so that's a strong sign. I wonder, Scott, what, what you make of this change in wording from fire season to fire year. Does that feel right to you? Um, I do believe that we are seeing fire years as a more appropriate type of um, uh, consideration for what we look at. Wildfires can occur all year long. As Russell mentioned, you know, typically in June, July, and August, we had in the past called that our fire season because that's when a lot of our large wildfires occurred. However, we see uh, increasing um, lessened snowpack, you know, this, certainly this winter where uh, not a lot of moisture has come across our eastern areas in the southern portion of Colorado. And as a result, these wildfires can get going at any time of the year. So fire gear is uh, a term that we definitely believe has much more appropriate significance, especially when we look at what our homeowners and property owners doing to ensure that they're prepared should a wildfire occur in that in their general vicinity. Yeah, we'll talk about preparation in just a bit. But, you know, with the current forecast, let me ask plainly, is Colorado on track for like a repeat of 2012? Uh, For those who don't remember, that was the year of the Waldo Canyon fire near Colorado Springs, about 350 homes destroyed, the High Park fire in Larimer County, 250 homes burned. Uh, Russ, does this look similar uh, to heading into 2012? Uh, Yeah, certainly, uh, like I mentioned, with the snowpack being as extreme as it is in the southern half of the state, you know, northern half of the state, it's it's not uh, as bad as it was in 2012. Okay. Uh, but the southern half of the state, it's uh, worse than 2012. Let's just be clear. Um, when we say the southern half of the state, t- tell me the kinds of communities that would be covered by that. Well, uh, the uh, you know Pueblo westward, um, uh-huh. maybe on that southern, uh, you know, just south of the Colorado Springs. There's Colorado Springs is kind of like right would be kind of your the break the break point in that north and south half as I see it. Um, so yeah, all along the Front Range you have the um, uh, Sangre de Cristo Mountains uh, south of Pueblo, uh, southwest Colorado you have the San Juan Mountains, um, and Grand Mesa just east of uh, Grand Junction. Um, yeah, so these are so some of the communities that that might be alerted. And, and Scott, if, if I live in one of those communities, I suppose, especially if I live in a forested area, uh, what should I be thinking? What should I be doing right now? 
Uh, certainly, there's a lot of things that homeowners can do. Um, first off, considering, you know, what is their defensible space around their homes? Uh, there's a national program called FireWise, and that provides a lot of information on how to try and mitigate that risk around a, a property or a home on removing dead fuels or ensuring that you uh, have appropriate types of um, uh, instead of wood shingles, maybe considering metal roofs, things like that. So firewising your home and some communities actually firewise the entire community. And right. so those types of pre-season types of uh, activities are really, really important for those homeowners. Um, outside of that, staying abreast of, you know, what is the the potential, ensuring that you're not utilizing, um, you know, a welding torch on a windy and dry day, uh, ensuring that you're trying to mitigate any potential ignitions of fire uh, in, you know, when you're working outside. And those types of things during the fire season for summer, but I mean, even right now, again, if we come back to fire gear, those typically in this time of year, human-caused fires are the primary reason we have wildfires. That is to say, they're not naturally sparked. Just briefly, uh, does Colorado, does the West have the resources to fight a 2012-like season this year? Um, at We certainly... The Rocky Mountain Area Coronation Center is is the coronation center to try and ensure that we have the appropriate resource response and capacity to meet those types of fires. At this time, we even actually brought in a large air tanker and a helicopter to be able to start supporting southern and eastern Colorado, as well as Kansas, as they're part of our geographic area. So we shift these resources around nationally as fire seasons or fire events begin to to um, become more active or as a decrease in some areas. So right now, as we start to move into this more busier uh, period, we certainly start to bring in those additional resources to help support those local initial attack and mutual aid resources. All right. Thanks to both of you. That's Scott Swenston. He's manager of the Rocky Mountain Area Coordination Center in Lakewood and Russ Mann, wildfire meteorologist. Maybe you've heard the songs of humpback whales. Well, it turns out that trees make music, too, in their own way. I'm not kidding. This is a ponderosa pine near Florissant, Colorado. This sound was captured by biologist David George Haskell for his book, The Songs of Trees. And David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's a delight to be with you. So that was an ultrasound recording, which captures sound that the human ear can't, uh, or at least can't perceive, uh, to your brain. What's causing that clicking in a ponderosa pine? So the little ultrasonic detector that we heard is is picking up little fizzles and, and cracks from inside the twig. It turns out that when a water is flowing through a twig... Uh, the, the little water conduits are coming in tiny, tiny little threads, almost like silken threads. Then when the tree gets dry, okay. so in a, in a drought or late in the afternoon on a sunny day, those silken threads break. And we're, what we're hearing is the acceleration of the breakage of those little, uh, those little threads of water. So it's like putting your ear to a tree and hearing the mounting signals of distress. So that's the hidden sound of a ponderosa. 
Uh, but in your book, you highlight sound we can all hear without any special equipment, and that is when the wind blows. The Ponderosa in particular is very noisy. What makes it so loud? The Ponderosa pine, well, particularly the Ponderosa in Colorado, harrows the wind with its stiff needles. If you watch a Ponderosa in the wind, its twigs will bob up and down, but the needles don't shift. They're like the tines of an agricultural uh, harrow. Mm tearing at the wind. And so the wind, even a slight gust of wind, creates a great roar of sound coming from the Ponderosa. Now, it turns out that other pine trees, say a white pine in the east, or even the Ponderosa pine in California, that has much longer, softer needles, doesn't make nearly such a screech. So the sound here is... One way of listening to the ecology of the, or the particularity of, of Colorado, we have very heavy snowfalls, of course, lots of ice, and the trees are adapted to that, or at least they were adapted to that until the climate started shifting and, and so forth. So, mm. so in these sounds, we're hearing the physiology of the tree, but we're also getting a glimpse into some of the challenges the trees are facing in this changing world. Uh, the naturalist John Muir called the sound of those needles in the wind the finest music. But uh, it, it's of such an intensity in Colorado's trees that uh, you don't necessarily find it to be terribly meditative, I understand. It isn't, or maybe the meditation leads us to a different place. Okay. And, and it's a place of, <laughs> of alarm. And, and for anyone out walking in, in the Ponderosa woods, I think if you, if you open your ears, you'll hear this. A slight gust creates a great whoosh from the trees and a really strong wind. The whole, it sounds like the whole mountainside is, is wailing. Hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a sound that's very evocative of, of the Rocky Mountains. My guest is biologist David George Haskell. And in his book, The Songs of Trees, he has studied 12 trees around the world, two of them in Colorado. And I'll say that the book won the 2018 Burroughs Medal for Distinguished Natural History Writing. You live part-time in Boulder now, but you didn't while writing. When you looked worldwide for trees to study... Why did you choose two from Colorado? Yes, the trees in the book are located in places that have very different ways that people and ecology are interconnected. And trees are the characters in the book that are telling this story. And it turns out that in Colorado, that there are the the confluence of change and of people and of ecology just manifests in, in very... Uh, fascinating ways. For example, one of the trees is in downtown Denver. Yeah, you said confluence. It's in Confluence it's Park. in Confluence Park. And for that particular tree, the cottonwood tree, the story is of urban change. Confluence Park, of course, in the 1970s and 80s was not a place people would go to swim and hang out and have a nice uh, family outing. It was, it was a, uh, a place with a lot more pollution and, and there wasn't a nice park there. And so through the action of nonprofits and, and the local government, Denver has transformed itself into a place that is leading the way for other cities around the world to show how to put bike paths where people are going to use them, how to put parks where people can experience nature and rivers and trees without having to drive up into the mountains. And so the tree that you profile, if you will, in Confluence Park in downtown Denver is a cottonwood. And uh, we have a recording of the leaves when they are full of water slapping in the wind. Now, I think what I hear in addition 
to wind is traffic. What you're hearing is is uh, the weir. So it's water from the South Platte River coming rushing down the rapids there. Aha. Uh-huh. And speaking to how close this is to water, but also to I-25. Exactly. You know, which might be indistinguishable from the water sound mm-hmm. sometimes. Yes, and, you know, one of the design features of, of Confluence Park is that it's, it's sunk. It's, it's, you know, the place where you'd go and sit down and have a picnic is lower than street level, and, and that acts as a way of, of managing floods. But it also has an unintended acoustic consequence is that you don't hear a lot of the traffic noise. The Mm. traffic noise goes above, and so it creates a little pool of calm and and the soundscape is dominated by the sounds of swallows in the summer or ducks in the wintertime and then the and rushing water. So you, you have here a tale of two trees, right? So there's this ponderosa near Florissant, Colorado, and then you've got this cottonwood that's smack in the middle of a city. And you tell the reader not to think of one as wild and the other as something else. You you both see you see these both rather as wild manifestations. Exactly. I think we've we've lived too long with the idea that anything that the human hand has touched has in somehow been defiled or is no longer natural or worthy of preservation. And I think we need to think instead of the human species as belonging here. So that a city, although a city of course has ecological problems and it has problems for people as well as areas of great beauty and joy for, for people in ecology. We should not think of the city as somehow removed and separate from the rest of the community of life. It's another way in which the community of life has organized itself. And so our problems are best solved, I think, by thinking of ourselves as within the community of life rather than of as masters or somehow separate mm-hmm. from it. Uh, will many of the trees in this book outlive you, David? Indeed, many uh-huh. of them will. Some, some. you know, it's an interesting question because the the boundary between life and death for trees is, is not so clearly drawn. One of the trees in, in the book is a great big fallen ash tree in the, in the forests of Tennessee. And I came on this tree right after it fell. And it taught me that it, there's as much life in a fallen tree as the tree had when it was standing alive. Mm. So it's afterlife, in fact, is is vibrant and vital. I'm and picturing mushrooms. I'm picturing perhaps animals that seek shelter in it. Yes, it's sort of large animals and also animals that love, love to walk along it. There are bobcats that sit on it to look around. But particularly within the tree, if you bend your ear to a fallen log, sometimes you can hear some of this ecosystem that lives within dead wood, mostly little insects and termites and so forth chewing away. There are as many species that live, breed, have their whole life cycle on dead wood as in the living tree. So Absolutely, these uh, trees, many of them, most of them will outlive me, but there are some that are already dead, but are, s- but are still, still somehow outliving you. Yes, and, and this <laughs> log, depending on how quick decomposition goes, may well still be around when I, when I depart this life. We have uh, just about a minute. How do you think trees are great connectors? Because that's what you call them, that these are stories from nature's great connectors. We're learning from biology now that the, 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 the notion of the individual is an illusion. In fact, all life is made from interconnection. And trees are so enormous, and they live rooted in one place, so they have to make connection work for them. So I chose them for this book because they are the master networkers of, of the world. And this sometimes meant sleeping in their midst. Absolutely. Sleeping, yeah. walking, talking. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you.
David George Haskell is author of The Songs of Trees, Stories from Nature's Great Connectors. He's also a professor of biology at the University of the South in Tennessee. He'll give a free lecture at the Old Main Chapel in Boulder the night of Tuesday, April 3rd. We'll leave you now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.